Welcome to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Darren, and on this podcast, we explore the intersection between politics and economics in Russia, Ukraine, and in Eurasia more broadly. The Bear Market Brief Podcast is part of our larger BMB Russia and Eurasia project. I encourage you to follow the project at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. Today, I want to zoom in on events on the ground in Russia. I think it's really important to understand what Russians think about the war and to what extent can we even know. Now, there are some political sensitivities here that I want to address head on. First and foremost, this podcast is not meant to suggest anything other than the fact that Ukrainians are the primary victims of the war. We need to understand this subject matter in isolation. There is value in knowing what's happening in Russia. I plan on doing a similar Ukraine episode soon. I also want to address that our first guest did at one point work for RT. He no longer does and resigned publicly at the beginning of the war. Critically, he's in Moscow currently and is willing to talk about events on the ground. This is not an endorsement of RT's politics. I certainly disagree. But again, there is value in understanding what is happening in Russia currently. Let's turn to the subject matter, though. Joining us first is Johnny Tickle. As I mentioned, he's currently in Russia and has done a lot in recent months to document what is actually happening there in relation to the war. Up after him is Greg Uden. I'll have both introduce themselves, so stay tuned. Great to have you joining us today. So to start, tell us a little bit about what's keeping you busy these days. Well, I left Russia in March and I returned after after five months. So I've been here since August. Uh, I'm not working here. I'm, uh, I'm not like an accredited journalist or anything like I used to be. So now I'm just here because this is my home. I have uh, lived here for five years now. And when I left Russia, I decided that I, I just had to come back. I've been in Moscow for essentially my entire life since I left university. So it was only natural that I came back and um, yeah, I came back home. So I guess relevant question before we you know talk about the subject matter today, what brought you to Russia in the first place? Well, I was an exchange student in St. Petersburg when I was studying in university in London. I did, I did Russian in university and I just fell in love with it. So as soon as I graduated, for my bachelor's degree, I instantly moved to Moscow. I actually uh, missed my graduation ceremony to get straight back over here as, as soon as possible. And I've been uh, here ever since. I understand. So let's um, jump into the very beginning of the war. And I, I don't want to equivocate or, or hide from this. You were working for RT at the time, um, yep. doing a lot of work traveling around Russia. And you decided to leave. Um, walk me through what was going through your head when the war broke out. Well, at that time, I was actually in Rostov. I um, I wanted to see what was happening in Rostov because what just happened was uh, Russia had, um, or Putin had signed presidential decrees recognizing the DPR and LPR as independent. And lots of refugees, people were being forcefully removed from the DPR and LPR into Rostov Oblast. So I wanted to go and see what was happening. Um, but then that quickly got cancelled. Um, the idea I had quickly got cancelled as uh, Putin declared the start of his so-called special military operation. And uh, 
I didn't know what to do. I, I was on the 23rd of February. I was in state of shock like all of us. And I ended up resigning on that day. Understood. Um, yeah. So kind of harping on that, on the, this kind of state of shock. Um, I remember back when the war started looking at my uh, VK, Contactia profile, the, the news feed. Um, at the very beginning of the war, there were some, I guess you could call them murmurs aren't the right word, but some, some public commentary. I don't, I don't like this. I'm against this. Um, that was followed by, I mean, what I would call pretty profound silence or people just stopped talking about it. So you mentioned that everyone was shocked um, when the war broke out. Uh, tell us about some of the conversations or what the, the mood was like when the war started. Well, prior to February, there was this constant stream of U.S. intelligence stating that Russia was preparing an offensive. But the Russian leadership, that's both the Kremlin and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, everyone was suggesting that it was the idea of an armed conflict was nonsense. I mean, even, even Zelensky was saying it. So people here believe them. And of course, uh, videos are shared on social media of tanks being moved to the border. But the average Russian person doesn't sit all day on Twitter or Telegram to read about this stuff. So people knew what was happening. Uh, but I didn't think, I don't think that anyone thought there would be a shot fired. So that was un until perhaps until 21st of February. And then that's right. Uh, I My experience is exactly the same as yours. People were a little bit worried. They were talking about it. But then it happened and suddenly... Nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. Maybe for a week or two, people were watching the news. And then people quickly got tired of the news because it was all conflict, 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 shooting, shooting, uh, missiles, missiles. People wanted to get on with their lives pretty much as soon as possible. So I think that's a great segue to talk about more recent events um, and the mobilization. So... Is that possible to tune out the war now? Um, are people talking about it again? How would you describe the, the general mood in, in Russia these days? Well, there's a sort of, I guess you could describe it as a keep calm and carry on attitude. I mean, for sure, people are scared, people are anxious. And you don't need to look at the statistics to know that uh, people are worried. They'll, they'll tell you. Um, that's been a thing since February, but this has ramped up massively uh, since mobilization was announced in September. I mean, I am I live in Moscow, and I'm sure uh, in the regions, uh, lots of the fundamentals are different, uh, but lots of the things remain the same. There's a apathetic majority that have been forced to face a reality of the situation. They're worried that their family members might be sent to fight, uh, but they have no other option but to keep going to work, living their daily lives. And of course, here in Moscow, it's not the same as what's happening in Dagestan, for example. Uh, but everyone, I think, across the country has the same worries that maybe their child, their brother, their father, their husband will be the next person to be sent to the front. So uh, I think that's a constant throughout, throughout the country. Just uh, for context, for some listeners who may be less familiar with the subject matter in Dagestan and in a lot of more ethnic minority uh, dominant regions, uh, it seems like there's a much higher rate of drafting so that Russian authorities are kind of deliberately uh, deliberately holding back from uh, drafting people in, in major cities. So I guess relating to the, the national mood, the feelings of worry, is this something that people are talking about in public? I know there's also been a, a fairly uh, strict crackdown on, on protest, but 
our friends, our families? Is this coming up in conversation in your life? Uh, yes, it comes comes up in conversation, but it's very superficial. Any try anytime I try to dig deeper and ask a few more questions, it's it's quickly shut down. Why do you want to talk about this? Why do you want to talk about politics? Um, lots of people talk about it like it's a battle between uh, the Russian government and the governments of the West, and it's not a matter for the everyday person. Um, so yes, people talk about it. But it's 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 not something that's dominating the conversation twenty four seven. People still talk about what's on TV, different culture things. But this whole uh, conflict is a part of it, but it's not everything. Understood. Now, I think your experience, particularly, you mentioned leaving Russia for a while and then coming home, as as you described it. Was there, at least in your experience, a change in the five months you were gone? You kind of had two snapshots. Um, any palpable difference or did it feel kind of similar? Did the shock wear off since the war started? What would you say about that? Um, to be frank, Moscow barely feels like it's changed at all. I mean, visually, there's very few posters with uh, the letter V or Z around uh Earlier, there was a clear reduction of men out and about in September, immediately after mobilization started, but that appears to come back to normal levels now. So in general, I would say there's barely any difference, and the city doesn't feel like it's in the middle of an armed conflict. So you're saying that there's, even despite mobilization, there's still some semblance of detachment from the goings-on on the front lines? Yeah, people people feel it. Uh of course, but in the end, people need to go to work and feed their families. So they just they suck it up and they continue continue on as normal as as much as they possibly can. So one other line of questioning um, that I really wanted and personally very curious to ask you about is this policy matter that gets a lot of discussion in the West about sanctions, um, whether they're working, whether they're not, and. I don't think this this episode is the forum to evaluate that at a policy level, but I would be really curious to hear about the impact of sanctions and economic statecraft uh, of the West in Russia. Are goods that you used to purchase no longer available? What kind of changes, if any, have you seen on that front? Well, it's quite a difficult question to answer. Um, when it comes to the availability of goods, there have been some changes, but I wouldn't call them drastic. I mean, for example, Coca-Cola has been replaced in supermarkets by another version made by the same factory Coke used to be made in. So the taste is almost almost the same. And also, if you want the real stuff, lots of non-branded shops have Kazakh Coke in stock. So I can get my fix whenever I like it. Um, but on the, on the whole, I would say the inventory uh, is mainly, but not entirely the same. But one thing that has changed is definitely the prices. Um, it's hard to know exactly how much of that is due to sanctions and how much is due to other factors. Before February, uh, food prices were already rising rapidly. And this is especially noticeable if I look back at the prices from five years ago when I first arrived in Russia. It's completely different. So this growth in prices has continued, but I wouldn't say it's skyrocketed. And I can't say it's completely um, because of sanctions. Uh, but I have seen a big increase in prices in restaurants and, and bars. Uh, even McDonald's, which we opened under a new brand name, it opened with higher prices. And actually, just last week, they announced an extra price hike. 
So uh, that will that hits the pockets of people who like to eat out. And for people who want to go to a bar, the price of a drink has jumped up as well. Uh, in fact, I could give a personal example, which yes, doesn't please. exactly translate to most Russians, as I'm, I'm a foreigner here, but I could it shed some light on it. Uh, there's a pub in Moscow, which is popular with Western foreigners. And pre-February, the cheapest pint of beer was 250 rubles, and now it's 390 rubles. That's like a 50% increase. Um, and that's even bigger once you consider the change in exchange rate for foreign people. So we're actually feeling it pretty hard too. Yeah, because the ruble has has, has strengthened um, pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's due to a lot of a lot of uh, intervention by Russia's government and efforts to prop up the price. But I guess a follow up there too. So people sounds like are not really talking about the war in a particularly deep or engaged way. Is inflation, is the economy something that is, has come up more in your conversations? Or I guess a better question, are you, are you having the same conversations you always have? Is, is it, is it um, a feeling of, I mean, the Levada Center just, just, just had a poll that came out that um, showed kind of an increase in negative emotions, kind of as a prevailing sentiment. Are you seeing that at all day to day? Oh, uh, for sure there's an increase in negative emotions. But when it comes to things like inflation and prices. People have been having these discussions for a couple of years now. Uh, prices seemingly constantly, constantly, constantly going up. And it doesn't feel like much has changed more. It's a continuation of problems people already had just getting a little bit worse. Understood. Well, I think that kind of takes us through the questions today. I really appreciate this update. I think this is fantastic color. So thanks for joining. Yeah, no problem. Thanks to Johnny for joining us and giving us some great on-the-ground insight about what's happening in Russia. But what about the bigger picture? What happens when we zoom out and look at polling data about public opinion? Do Russians support the war? Is there any way we can even know? Joining us to discuss that is Greg Uden. He'll introduce himself in just a bit, so stay tuned. Greg, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. To begin, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background here. Uh, Well, I'm a political theorist. I'm heading a master program in political philosophy at the university called the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. Uh, Currently, I'm also a visitor research fellow at Princeton. Fantastic. So let's turn to the, the politics here and the polling and sociology. So very, very top level right now, as far as Russian politics are concerned, if you're only looking at the poll data, how popular are the war and mobilization with Russians? Impossible to tell. Uh, The polling data is not useful uh, in approaching this this question. Uh, Look, um, when we're dealing with the polling data from Russia, I usually suggest people to keep three things in mind. One thing is, of course, the non-response rate, which is high in uh, in Russia. Not only in Russia; I mean, that's a, that's a common disease with uh, polls these days. But uh, in a minute, I will tell why in in Russia it matters uh, in particular. And the uh, non-response rates uh, were pretty high. I mean. Uh, from what we know about the response rates uh, of this war, they were mainly between five to seven percent, and 
apparently they dropped even further after the mobilization started because people got really, really scared about interviewers approaching them, calling them. Uh, and that has something to do with uh, point number two. And the point number two is that people are assuming that the polls are conducted by the state. This is not always the case, but polling is absolutely uh, comprehended as being associated with, with the state. So basically, when you're approached by, by a pollster, um, you assume that you are approached by, by the state. And that immediately changes your behavior, of course, and uh, it affects your, uh, your responses. So the majority of Russians would uh, avoid participating in polls, but those who do participate uh, assume that they are dealing now with, uh, with the state. And therefore, obviously, you have to expect that uh, more loyal people are likely to, to agree to participate. Now, point number three, uh, and point number three is the acclamation. Let me just introduce this, uh, this idea of, uh, of acclamation. Uh, it has to do something with the type of political regime that exists in Russia, where basically the idea uh, is that the uh, political role, political function of the people is to acclaim to the decisions that are already made by the leader. Uh, and the ways to acclaim, there are multiple. There are elections, there are plebiscites, and there are also opinion polls. Uh, so when you're approached uh, with a question of do you support, you're not, you don't assume that you can support or not support. The question is, uh, are you loyal to the leader who already made the decision? So the decision doesn't depend on you. Or the only thing that depends on you now is whether you are show your loyalty or you show your disloyalty to, to the leader. So this acclamation frame, it really affects uh, people, particularly when they are answering the question of, do you support something? Do you support uh, the president? Do you support the decision made, made by the president? Uh, so those are things that you have to keep in mind when approaching polls. It doesn't mean that polls are completely useless, but sometimes, I mean, in, in asking more sophisticated questions, you can make them uh, more useful. But in assessing like the level of support in Russia, no, this, this is not going to help. So one quick technical note for listeners, just by non-response, since we're using some terminology here, basically means people do not answer polls. They, they refuse to participate. And that's not unique to Russia, as, as Greg said here, but um, just to explain the technical note. So I guess a quick follow-up question there. I asked about the war and mobilization now. Would the same apply to polls um, about Putin's approval rating? Absolutely. I mean, uh, whatever is related to the approval and support, particularly for the supreme leader, uh, all of these questions are immediately interpreted as uh, a request to, to show your loyalty. I mean, even, even by people who wouldn't do that, who would say, no, I don't approve, I am disloyal, I, I'm against the president, the frame is the same. They don't uh, mean that they kind of can affect the the decision of the president. It's just the uh, the desperate willingness to show no, I'm against that. But the frame remains the same. That's very different from the frame of like making a, a choice. Like uh, you are presented with a choice, and then you uh, you kind of imagining that you have uh, some influence on the choice. This is not the case with uh, with the people being pulled in. Uh, in Russia. Uh, I can tell you an anecdote that probably kind of helps understand uh, what I'm talking about. So immediately after the war started, the ratings of uh, all Russian politicians uh, immediately went up. 
all Russian politicians, not only uh, the president, uh, precisely because uh, people immediately started reacting to the question of do you support or do you approve with yes, with yes saying. And one of those politicians was Vladimir Zhirinovsky, uh, who mm, at that point was already dead. Uh, so his ratings uh, kept going up uh, while he was uh, already dead. And that kind of explains you how the framing of the question uh, affects the, the outcome. You had said, I believe it was you, said that um, you already cited polling data that showed that Putin would even have support if he ended the war tomorrow, that yet Russians would overwhelmingly go along with that. So... I think that is really interesting evidence for this um, kind of acclimation framework. You think that's the case that really, though, if Putin said we're withdrawing, you know, from X regions, we're only keeping Donetsk, Luhansk or any other combination, people would be OK with that right now? Look, uh, a good polling agency, Russian Field, conducted this poll a couple of weeks ago, and they I call them good because they demonstrate some research integrity. They are openly pu publicizing their non-response rates, which normally pollsters in Russia wouldn't do. Uh, so they are doing that, and they also did this uh, this thing. They asked people two different questions. Question number one: If Vladimir Putin ends the war tomorrow, would you support him? Seventy-five percent said yes. Question number two. If Vladimir Putin launches uh, an, an, an yet another attack on Kyiv tomorrow, would you support him? 60% said yes. And you have uh, like 40% of people who are basically saying yes to whatever decision he takes. Like if he wants us to fly tomorrow on the moon, would you support him? Yes. Uh, and this is also something you have to keep in mind uh, when thinking about the causes of this war. Because had Vladimir Putin announced on February 24th that for some security reasons, no matter what, are these, uh, what these reasons are, he's handing over the Donetsk and Luhansk regions back to Ukraine, the levels of support would have been exactly the same. So I guess a, a question that comes to mind, and I hope I'm not asking anything too naive here, is there really any outlet for average Russians to indicate their lack of approval. You mentioned some are desperate. They would even answer in the polls, I do not support this initiative. I'm against the regime. I guess people have left. Is there any internal outlet right now, be that in polling question or, or politically? Uh, so you mean, how do we assess that? Is, is there a path generally, physically, but then yes, how would we assess that too, I think is the more pertinent question. Well, definitely not with uh, with polling. Uh, that's the worst way to, to understand what's, what's going on in Russia. Um, number one thing you have to keep in mind when thinking about Russia is that Russia is a completely depoliticized country, meaning that people learn to stay away from politics. Uh, never engage, uh, completely desperate about, uh, about politics, uh, completely desperate about, uh, about the idea of making life better, for instance. I mean, on, a, on an everyday level, if you start arguing that there are ways to make a life better through politics, you would probably be ridiculed immediately because that's so naive. You, you don't understand something very basic about how things work. Never, ever in human history, politics helped uh, making life of the people better. Uh, and this is, this is the, the basic condition. So under this condition, uh, I mean, it, it, it helps to uh, understand why people are reacting in this way to, to polling. Uh, but it 
also helps to understand where the the resistance might come from, and this is uh, what what you are apparently are interested in. Of course, that creates a very depressive atmosphere. Uh, and for several years before this invasion, uh, we saw people kind of you know starting to organize a little bit. We saw a rise of local communities. Uh, saw a rise of local politicians. Uh, the young uh, finally started to engage a little bit uh, in, in politics amid this, this general uh, disaffection. And that was definitely one of the reasons for Putin to start this war, because uh, things were not going uh, his way. Now, of course, those all those initiatives, they are suppressed, and it's just very difficult to, uh, yeah, to imagine them uh, acting. But those people are kind of waiting for the opportunity to act. And theory of social movements tells us that people start acting not when, when the life becomes unbearable, but rather when they see an opportunity, when there is like, you know, an opening, a crack in the system. Uh, so I think there is enough potential for collective action in Russia, and you should never discount uh, people who are against this war. This is a significant minority. I think it is larger, actually, than people who are uh, genuinely su supporting the war, like being emotionally invested. I think both both uh, segments are like about 15 to 20%. Maybe the opponents are up to 25%. And of course, they are kind of waiting for uh, for the opportunity to, uh, to step in. But in order for that to happen, uh, there should be some reshuffling within the system because right now there, there are just no opportunities. And this is not how social movements appear. Understood. Now... A kind of methodological question that I wanted to ask about, how are polls generally, before the war or now, but how are polls generally conducted in, in Russia? I've heard there's more in-person polling than we have in the West. Any thoughts there? And does it vary by polling agency? Uh, well, um, first of all, Russia is a very sophisticated, uh, Russia has very sophisticated polling agencies and polling techniques. And this is actually very interesting because Russia also has a very sophisticated voting techniques. It's a global year on, on electronic voting. So very, very advanced techniques. Um, and this is not uh, by accident. This is because uh, the legitimacy of this kind of regime is built on constant voting, polling, and actually producing this acclamation. Uh, just to give you an example, like in 2014, uh, when there was this annexation of Crimea, a um, so-called megapole uh, was conducted uh, in a matter of three days, I guess, with 50,000 uh, people being sampled and was a representative sample for all Russian regions. Well, basically a substitution for uh, a referendum that they couldn't have afforded at that point because you cannot kind of start a referendum on accepting uh, yet another region into Russia when you have those little green men uh, acting there. So instead of that, you just uh, command uh, a swift poll. And like in terms of uh, technical implementation, it was a, a masterpiece. Like in, in just a couple of days, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure that there is any agency in, in the US able of, uh, capable of doing uh, that stuff. Like it was brilliant. Uh, so you have a lot of uh, very advanced sampling techniques, and the state invests massively in uh, in polling. Um, in that case, it was also revolutionary because it was one of the first like major uh, telephone uh, polls, 
And since then, most of the posters, they migrated to, uh, to telephone interviews. Uh, the face-to-face -face interviews, they still uh, remain in place, and uh, particularly Levada Center, at, the name might, might tell something to, uh, to the audience. So Levada Center is still keen on, uh, on keeping these, this methodology. Most of the specialists think it's completely outdated. It creates additional difficulties for, uh, for the interviewers, but they would still uh, stick to, to that. Otherwise, most of that is uh, telephone interviews on combined sampling. Uh, so probably 70%, 70 or 80% of uh, cell phones and 20% of landline. Uh, just for more uh, context for listeners, if you are not familiar with Levada Center, they're an independent polling agency. They have a pretty good reputation, I would say, certainly among Russia watchers uh, here in the West. Yeah, just let, let, let me add something to that. I mean, that's that's true. They, they are independent. They are uh, generally like critical of, of the Kremlin. And for that reason, people tend to assume that their data is kind of more valid, uh, which is not true. Uh, and this is not true because, well, first of all, it is easy to realize that their numbers almost always coincide with the numbers provided by uh, the state-affiliated agencies, which are uh, FTSIOM and uh, FOM, uh, so the Old Russian Center for uh, Study of Public Opinion and the Public Opinion Foundation. Uh, so both of them are uh, closely affiliated with the presidential administration, and but, but they still they report the same poll numbers. And the secret is, of course, that they are using the same methodology and even that they are using the same subcontractors. Uh, so basically, people who are doing, like physically doing the, the polling job for them are the, are the same people. Understood. Um, last question here, but one that's, I think, particularly curious to me. I've read over the years that in addition to Russia watchers here in the West, the Kremlin and Putin's team pay a fair bit of attention to, I don't know if it's polling per se, but public opinion data to understand um, you know, whether there's acclimation or the extent, the extent of acclimation to make decisions. You mentioned straight off the bat, first and foremost, we can't really know from polling, at least, whether Russians approve of the Ukraine war. Does this mean that there's also a problem for Putin and his team in the sense that they can't really measure this either? Yeah, it could be a problem. Uh, I mean, um, the reason why they're paying so much attention to, to polling is because it helps to produce acclimation. So let me just give you a very brief uh, picture of how it happens. Like, imagine uh, there is a, a decision brewing in presidential administration. Well, what did you do? They would command a poll first, and the poll would normally uh, demonstrate that there is low support for this uh, decision. They would never publicize the, uh, the numbers. They would uh, kind of double down on propaganda uh, on state TV, uh, particularly trying to make people learn some keywords. Then they take yet another poll. Uh, that would show that the numbers are a bit up. They wouldn't report them uh, and double down on propaganda again. And then they would reach the, the numbers that can be publicized. And now that these numbers are publicized, well, you have, of course, I mean, uh, people wants that, not us. I mean, we're just implementing the will of the people. So this is the regular course of events. Now, uh, the question is whether they believe, with producing this acclamation, whether they believe uh, in this, like the, the genuine character of this acclamation. This is something we don't really know, uh, but it looks like uh, 
they're pretty much convinced that, I mean, they take the indifference that Russians do have uh, for politics. Sometimes they would tend to take it for like uh, genuine affection for uh, for the government, which are two very different things. And we can see it even now with this mobilization, which uh, is not really popular among Russians, obviously. I mean, some people would still go to the trenches just because they can't figure out how to avoid that. But there is definitely no enthusiasm there. Uh, and uh, that kind of creates a problem because if you ask people uh, uh, through a poll whether they, ha they are happy about mobilization, of course they are, because this is a ready-made decision. And it is kind of, I mean, still you have to keep in mind that uh, in Russia, protesting against the war is a, cr is a criminal punishment. Uh, is, is, a crime, is a crime that, is, uh, that can lead to criminal punishment. I mean, you can end up behind uh, bars for 15 years. And people would, of course, say they are happy. Uh, are they really happy? Does it translate into action? Not really. Uh, I think this kind of conflict, this kind of, like, you know, taking this, um, sticking to this, the rules of the acclamation game to real, for real enthusiasm might be a, a big problem down the line for Putin and his government as they need more and more uh, involvement and mobilization uh, from the people. They've been running on disengagement uh, for very, very long. Now that they are demanding engagement, that's a big challenge for them. Thank you for that note, and thank you for joining today. I really thank appreciate you. your participation. Thanks again to our guests, Johnny and Greg, and thanks to you, listener, for joining us today. I hope you learned as much as I did. BMB Russia is an initiative of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. That's FPRI. For more information about this initiative and many others, be sure to follow us at the Twitter handle at FPRI or at the website fpri.org. Thanks again for joining and we'll catch you soon.